and welcome to the third episode of this second series of Star Guitar. This week, I welcome Barry Cadogan to the podcast. Barry's from Nottingham and started playing guitar in his teens after hearing the Stone Roses debut album. As he explains in the episode, that record and John Squire's guitar playing had a massive impact on him. And since getting his first guitar not long after and learning to play I Want to Be Adored, he's never really looked back. He formed his band, Little Barry, not long after and recorded their early material later moving to London. The band's debut, We Are Little Barry, was released in 2005, followed by four more, Stand Your Ground, King of the Waves, Shadow, and finally Death Express, which was released in 2017. Barry's also well known as a guitarist in other people's bands, famously playing in Primal Scream between 2006 and 2015, and for the likes of Paul Weller, Edwin Collins, Steve Mason, Spiritualized, Anton Newcomb, Johnny Marr, and Matt Johnson of The The. If you're a fan of Better Call Saul, you'll also be familiar with Barry's guitar playing. That's him playing the show's intro music. It was such a pleasure doing this interview, which we did at the Gibson showroom in central London, so a big thank you to Gibson for letting us do that. Barry turned up with these two insanely gorgeous guitars, plugged into a little Marshall, and we got chatting. Anyway, here's the interview. I hope you like it. Barry Cadogan, and you're listening to Star Guitar. Thanks for doing this, Barry. Um, oh, you're welcome. We're sitting in the Gibson showroom surrounded by beautiful guitars. Um, I don't think any are quite as nice as the two that you've brought with you today, though. So, oh, I um, don't know about that. I yeah. When did you uh, first pick up a guitar? Um, it was shortly before my 15th birthday, because uh, my birthday is early January. And uh, so for Christmas, I got my first guitar, which was a, a cheap nylon strong Spanish guitar that was 40 quid brand new I think from our local music shop that was called music, <coughs> excuse me, Music Plus which was in Beeston near Nottingham where I grew up it was run by this old couple, a shop that had been there for years it was quite, quite a notorious shop in a way this old couple were quite interesting they were always sort of arguing with each other in the shop and mm-hmm. they were very sweet really but you'd find the odd cool thing in there because they, you know some mates used to find like, old synthesizers in there because they didn't really know what they were you know, yeah. And stuff. but yeah, anyway, the guitar came from there I was inspired to learn to play the guitar from the Stone Roses' first album. You knew you wanted to play the guitar before you got it. It wasn't like you, it was just yeah, there and you... Yeah, I wanted to have a go, yeah. yeah. I, I really fell in love with that Stone Roses record. I've got an older sister. She's two and a half years older than me. And I was still at secondary school. She was at college age, going out to gigs, buying records, you know. Mm-hmm. The more records she was playing, she just kept playing this, this album, you know. She bought it when it came out, I guess, like spring 89 or whatever it was. And it was just on all the time, along with other records, but that seemed to be on a lot more. And yeah. I don't know, it just sort of got under your skin somehow, really. And then I, I started listening to the record with her, and she'd start leaving the record out for me to listen to and other records as well. And I just totally fell in love with that record, and I loved the photos and the imagery. And then I started to get interested in the look of the guitar. And John Squire with that Gretsch hollowbody guitar on the, the album photographs even though it's not exactly like a, a Gibson, but it, it was, it was yeah. in that vein, you know, that semi-acoustic guitar that I sort of, I guess, associated with rock and roll or 60s music. And I just loved that imagery of that guitar. And around the same time I saw on TV, they showed a late 60s concert of Chuck Berry uh, playing a festival, and he was playing a bright red, you know, Gibson 345 or something. And that was it, seeing that yeah. guitar. I was like, well, you know, I'd like to be in a band like, those guys but I want that guitar you know that was a thing how long was it before you could play Waterfall and I think the first thing I learned was the chords to I want to be a daughter or something I think, I think my sister Karen showed me that actually 
because she could play a bit of guitar. She was a violinist. Yeah. But she could play a little bit. Um, but I didn't really work out the songs properly for a while, you know. You know, I never got to see them, so you don't really see what they're using, how they're doing it. But that, that was the main reason that I learned that. And the Chuck clip, and then around, shortly after that, I saw that old B.B. King concert live in Africa and obviously realised B.B.'s guitar is very much like Chuck's, even though they played very different. That was the starting thing, really. When, when was it kind of apparent that you had a, a flair for it? I don't know if I'd know when I had a flair for it, but I knew how much I loved it very quickly. I really wanted to get an electric guitar as soon as I could. And my sister, being very cool, she lent me the money six months later to buy an electric guitar. It's nice to hear this story about um, yeah. an well, sibling, because well, so often it's Well, my sister was a massive that. influence, definitely, yeah. because she was bringing home all these records that, you know, before that you are a kid and you only really know really about what's on the radio and maybe a few other things that your mum and dad might like that you may like or may not. But my sister's record collection was the key. That was the way in, really, because she had the Roses, the Mondays... But she also had American groups like Dinosaur Jr., Mudhoney. All this stuff was really important to me because that was the way into the music, that, some of the music that maybe influenced them as well. Can you yeah. remember your first um, sort of perfor- public performance? Yes, it was. It was quite late, actually. I didn't do a gig for a long time. I think I was very shy. But we, I used to jam a lot with my friends. But we played at a mate's 18th birthday party or something. It was me and my friends, Paul and Adam, who were now in a band called The Sound Carriers. Uh, we played together in bands for years, but we just jammed at a friend's birthday party. She played instrumentally, yeah. But it was it was good fun just as a trio, yeah, it was good. How long did it take you to become a frontman? Quite a while, because I wasn't interested in doing that at first. I wanted to do like the sort of John Squire or Johnny Marr thing. I wanted to be the lead guitar player in a band and someone else do the singing. Right. But I started singing just out of frustration because I couldn't find always find people or, or or the you know it was just to be a bit self-sufficient as well that's why I started doing it I sort of reluctantly did it but something appealed to me about stepping up to the mic with the guitar I don't know why it's probably from seeing people like Chuck Berry and obviously Jimi Hendrix or whatever to sing it. but it wasn't something that occurred to me in the beginning preferred the, to be the guy on the side almost like yeah the Squire Omar Pete Townsend kind of vibe was what I, I wanted to do at first. And uh, how long did it take you to get that electric guitar then? You said you, you, know, you, you knew you wanted one straight away. Uh, it took me six months. Right, oh, sorry, yeah, you said you Yeah, so it. I got it in the, summer of, in the summer of 1990. It was a bolt-on-neck um, Columbus 335 copy. You know, so it looked the part. It was like yeah. a dark red, you know, so it had the Chuck Berry sort of look, you know. It was a pretty decent guitar, actually, for a first electric guitar, you know. And it did everything you wanted? It did, yeah. I think in the end I traded it for a Stratocaster because I got really into Jimi Hendrix and you know, I got a cheap Stratocaster copy. But, um, but yeah, the, the hollow body one was pretty cool, actually. Something that you've kept up with, though, like uh, getting new guitars, trading them. I know you've got a few uh, now, but you know, have, you all, have you always had lots of different guitars? Yeah, I've, I've been through so many guitars. Like, uh, I inherited a bit of money when one of my grandparents passed away and I bought myself my first vintage guitar with one of those without some of that money and it was a Fender Mustang which at the time in the early 90s was 350 quid and it was a 1964 like a Dakota Red or whatever so that was my first 60s guitar you know and then I sort of bought and sold guitars a little bit I guess in some ways made a little bit of money and traded up a little bit towards things you know because I couldn't have gone out and bought a new Gibson or anything yeah. you know, at the time so I sort of traded a little bit sometimes I got the idea well if I just chop into cheaper ones I can get a better guitar or whatever you know so but there was loads of second hand stuff around then there was old guitars in most shops really during all this time then when you absorbing all this music did you uh, were you developing like a sort of personal style of playing do you think or um, were you just absorbing so much stuff 
I don't think I did really. I, I don't know. I don't know what anybody else would think, but I just think it was all going in, and I was just trying to learn stuff, you know, from kind of loads of different styles. Really, obviously, I liked a lot of what what would have been called the indie sort of sounds at the time, but but then that took me to the sounds of before, and I started. You know, you start to notice when you're watching video clips or things on TV, and you start to notice it's not just the guitars. But I was thinking like, oh, you know, the amps are different, the sound is different, and I was starting to get interested in sounds, you know, but not really knowing how people were doing it. So when when did um, kind of Little Barry? Uh Form it was about sort of late nineties, early two thousand. Yeah, I start, started it as a solo project, just the idea just to make a demo and then maybe try and put a band together. And I made a recording in my friend's house, which was I think it was nineteen ninety nine. I made a dre- made a rough demo, did one one track in a friend's bedroom, an acoustic track. I made like a three or four track demo. Um, and a friend of ours took it down to London and played it to a guy who ran a small label. Gerald, who ran Jasmine Records, and he released two tracks off the demo on that. So that's how it sort of got started. Right. With a view to kind of uh, it being a career or just something like an, a, you know, an adventure to do? Or? No, I wanted to do it all the time. I, right. I knew that I just wanted to play the guitar after a few months of learning, really. I didn't know how or, or didn't know what I was going to end up sounding like, but I just thought, I just knew, oh, well, I just want to do this. Uh, that was very clear right. at that point that... Interests in other things carried on for a bit, but sort of slipped by the wayside. You know, that that was all I was interested in by that point. What was the kind of first serious guitar that you got? Then? Um, Would it be that Mustang you mentioned? Maybe the Mustang was the first vintage guitar, but the first guitar, I guess, I started to notice I was maybe getting better on. I had an Epiphone Les Paul. You know, that was cool. Sounded good. Yeah, it was sunburst. You know, it had a bit of the vibe. But I think the Fender Mustang was the first decent vintage guitar I got. And I bought those because of people like Steve Turner out of Mudhoney. But at the time, you know, they were 350 quid. If you had 500 quid, you could get a Jag or a Jazzmaster. But that was a lot of money for me at the time to spend on a guitar. So I didn't quite go to that. Um, but the next step up from that was I bought a 70s Les Paul Custom. because so I got really into the sound of the Blues Breakers and Mick Ronson, early Jeff Beck group. Mm-hmm. So I wanted a Les Paul. And um, I guess that, that was a massive tipping point, getting a good Gibson, really. That was a cool sounding guitar. It weighed a ton, but it was cool. It was it was cherry red. It was cool looking. I'm staring at this black Les Paul that you've got next to you. If you could just tell us a little bit about that. This is a 1955 Les Paul Custom, sometimes called a Black Beauty. I got this guitar about four or five years ago. Um, I've wanted one for I'd wanted one for about 20 years. I saw one in a guitar magazine, and I was like. I sort of just fell in love with the visual look of it. Didn't know anything about them, all the different models, really. I like the look of these ones with the P90 and the staple pickup. Through a a friend of mine in America, he told me about this guitar came up, but it was in a bit of a state. And he sent me a picture of it, and someone had put a humbucking pickup in the bridge. And uh, it had been refinished. Well, I think the top, at least the top, has been refinished. Um, It had had a pretty nasty fret job and stuff, but it was reachable. And I traded two guitars and some money to get it. Um, but at first, thanks to my friend, he let me check the guitar out first before I made the decision. Yeah. And uh, it had come over from the States. And uh, I had to go and collect it from the Tower of London, which is an interesting story. <laughs> but, um, but like... Um, it wasn't where it was kept. No, someone... someone uh, it was left with someone who worked in the Tower of London, so I had to ring the bell. And a guy came out with a guitar case while all these tourists were standing there. Wow. So it looked like some kind of weird... Like Masonic ritual or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah some strange ritual. But um, 
And I got the guitar home, and even with like old strings on it, I knew it had something about it. So um, yeah, I managed to work out. I sold a couple of guitars and put in some money, and I got hold of it. And then I had to get the work done on it, new frets, and get the cavity filled and the right pickup, the P90 put back in the bridge. So the P90 that you got to replace the humbucker that had been put in, is that sort of period correct? It wasn't originally. I had a Duncan one in there. And then my friend found a P90 on a car boot sale in America and gave it to me. Wow. But then that one broke. Okay. So I gave that to my friend who winds pickups so he could fix it. And then I bought another one off my mate, player grade vintage guy, sold me one. So there's been a few in there. But it's a, it's a period correct one now. And the neck is... Uh, That's always been the factory pickup, staple pickup, okay. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had to do a bit of work. Um, because it's non-original, I screwed the Bigsby on it, which horrified some people. So it had... Um, I had a stop tail. It had a stop tail yeah. on it first, right? Yeah. Some people got really angry about it for some reason. People um, get angry about stuff that you do to your guitar. Yeah, I know. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And you've used this... Um, on the road and on records? I've used it on the road a bit with the Prom Scream. I've gigged it occasionally with Little Barry. Um, but I've used it on quite a few recordings. It was on the Death Express record okay. and stuff. But this is sort of a newer, although it's five years, it's sort of newer acquisition for me. Okay. I've not had it as long as I've had the 330 or the 345. So, yeah, I just want to use it more in the future. But it's got its own tone. It's an interesting sounding guitar. Would we be able to hear it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, okay. But one thing I've got into more recently is um, flat wound strings. So this is strung with flats, apart from I swapped the wound third out for a plain one, so it's a bit more bendy. So yeah, bridge. of sweet sounds in a guitar like this whereas you know a lot of people just crank them up and yeah they're great for that you know I suppose this guitar was when it was made would have been aimed at jazz players maybe even country players western swing players I don't know you know well I mean 55 rock and roll was, was it in its yeah very early sort of infancy I think then. these first came out in late 53 right there's a lot of sort of sweet sounds I mean you can get good sort of bright sounds out the back pick up you know, you know um Middle pickup's very sweet. That's real, um, kind of staxy. Yeah, sort of R and B sound yeah, yeah. or something. And then the front pickup's pretty. I think the idea was to try and get more definition out the front pickup than a P ninety. But um, some really nice sort of warmer tones out of that like the sort of chunky sort of thunkiness you get out of the flat wound strings. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. sitting there smiling. It does a different thing on the low strings mm-hmm. with those strings. You know, you get a... It takes the sort of boing out of it. Yeah. But, but you get a different... 
just reminds me of records, really. A lot of old records were made with flats, or, you know, the Motown kind of... All those sort of sounds with the flats, you seem to get a different definition and a different... Absolutely, thing. And yeah, it just it's... suits this guitar, I think. Um, you get that nice sort of... Um, it's sort of a different kind of punch with flats. And it works a lot with soul stuff, R&B stuff, blues stuff. And I guess, obviously, jazz, rockabilly, jump blues, all those sounds, but... Yeah, I just like the tone of the flats with this guitar, it just works. Whereas I bought it to be more like a sort of late 60s blues rock guitar. <laughs> you know, thinking Fleetwood Mac, Rolling Stones, but I tend to play other kind of things on it more. So when you pick that up, will you immediately just start doing something differently because of the, the sound that kind of inspires it, takes you off in a different direction? I think guitars can a little bit, sometimes on the way they feel as well, even before you plug them in, you know. But yeah, I've ended up using this guitar for things that I didn't necessarily think I would. But there's a friend of mine who... He's into a lot of kind of 50s sounds and all his guitars are strung with flats, you know, whether it be a, a Fender Escar or Dan Electro or whatever, that's his sound. And I really got into it by playing his guitars and I thought, well, this just sounds like a lot of records that I love. So when I thought I'd try it on this because of this pickup, I thought it would really make sense. And Not that I can play that Western Swing stuff, but you can get those kind of chords and that sort of feel like... Um <laughs> really nice sort yeah that's quite a almost good steel guitar it, yeah. <laughs> almost steel guitar kind of sounds yeah like um, like I don't know like Santa and Johnny or something it's uh, you know yeah, that, that kind of I've been trying Hawaiian I, I don't spend enough time in it but I've been trying to I've been trying to play with the thumb pick so when it's like sort of That the flatline strings are perfect. It's got that thing, real like Jack and Z sort of thing. For that sound, it's really it gives you the definition as well. So I think this guitar really works like that. Although I'm still learning how to do that. Really, I think it's going all right. Um, what um, what would you use the thumb pick for? Is that something that you would use in your own um, music, or is it when you're playing with other people? Well, I've used it on a couple of songs with Matt Johnson with the, the right um, because it really worked for a couple of the songs just to be able to do certain things like we did a version of track beating generation where matt wanted it a bit slower and a bit more moody and it's almost like trying to think of taking it into a bit more of a because the song before was a bit more upbeat sort mm-hmm. of rhythm you know and but matt wanted to slow it down I mean, it's impossible to play like johnny Marr anyway so however johnny did it you know, no one else <laughs> can do that um and i started use it for that and the track armageddon days because it enabled me to <laughs> Which isn't how it was originally played, but that's just how I played it, you know. But Matt was quite—he was like that. He says, "Lino, we'll just do it your own way, and we'll do, find something that feels right." He was pretty, very open to ideas, really, to get something. He was more about getting a vibe that he liked rather than things being note perfect. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's been off the road for so long as well until he came back recently. That yeah, I guess he wants to keep it, maybe keep it fresh or something. Or yeah, I think he did, uh, and it, he liked the idea of. Um, he didn't want to have anything on track, backing tapes, nothing sampler sequences. He didn't want to do that this time. So every sound that was done by a five-piece band, you know, there was nothing on... Everything was done by us. There was nothing on backing or anything. Did you know Matt Johnson before he... Uh, N- no. Um, Johnny Marr got me the gig. Right. Johnny called me and said, 
Matt wants to do some gigs again. He's looking for a guitar player. I think Matt did ask Johnny, but Johnny was making his own record, touring. And um, Johnny put in a word for me and gave me Matt's number, and I gave him a call. I went round to Matt's house, and we drank tea for a couple of hours and talked, which I found out is the way that Matt sort of interviews people, really. Leave a, get you round for a cup of tea or maybe go for a beer somewhere. And uh, he just sort of susses people out that way, and I just liked him instantly. I thought he was a brilliant guy and uh, a fascinating bloke, and I really fancied giving it a go. And I didn't know a lot of the other's back catalogue at that point, but I just fancied giving it a go. How many tours did you do? We did sort of select shows around the UK. We did a few warm-up shows, and then we did three big shows in London. We did the Albert Hall, Brixton Academy, and the Troxy. And we did a couple of warm-up gigs around the UK and a festival in Sweden. Then we did, like, a festival or two in the UK. And then we went over and did um, short-runner shows in America and then Australia. And then we came back and did a couple of shows in the UK, I think. So we didn't do a huge amount of shows, but it was really great fun. But we all did a lot of work rehearsing, you know, a lot of pre-production because Matt's first shows in 17 years. You know? Yeah, yeah. If you're going to do it after that long, it's got to be. Yeah, and he, be right. he obviously wanted to make it good or whatever. But it was, um, yeah, it was a really great thing to do. What's it like playing in, in uh, other people's bands? Is there does it just have to be right? I mean, presumably, it's, you know, you can't just play with anyone. But no, it depends who you work with. That you know, it's different. Sometimes the the way you work or the role you play is different depending on whose band you're in and. Your experiences are different on who's leading the band or, or whatever. You know, it's a, di- it's a totally different role to front in your own group. But it's a role that I like doing. Because it gives you a chance to explore sides of your playing that you wouldn't do in your own music necessarily. You know, because some of it wouldn't be in context or be mm-hmm. right. Uh, and also you learn a lot because you're playing a different role, different positions. Sometimes I like doing that. Sometimes I like maybe going back to the original idea of just being the guitar player. I do quite enjoy that as well, but... At the same time, I, I do feel the need to write my own songs and make my own music, and front of my own band is a different thing, you know. And off stage too, I suppose it's just you know you turn up, you play guitar. There's no other obligation or anything like that. It's just no, not really. Although I've been lucky that a lot of the bands I've worked have been very sociable, so you know you hang out quite a lot and and stuff off, you know, when you got time off and that. And different roles in different bands, really. You know, when I'm playing with Steve Mason, it's quite different to playing with Edwin because the music music's different. Mm. Or playing with Matt, but. I've really enjoyed all those things, you know, that I've been doing last year. You've done some shows relatively recently with Edwin Collins. Yes, yeah. And Um, and more coming. Yeah, I've played with Edwin before, years ago as well. Because he produced the first Little Barry record, right? He did, yeah. Uh, I met Edwin through a mutual friend, Andy Hackett, who used to have a guitar shop called Angel Music, and Andy's played with Edwin for years. He introduced us at an Edwin gig, and I gave Edwin one of our early singles, and the band was looking to do a new single in London and to meet Edwin, and we went down to do a single, and it went really well, and we managed to record three tracks in a day instead of two. And Edwin got quite into it, and he said, do you want to carry on and do an album? And we were like, yeah, we'd love to, but we can't. You know, we don't have the means, we don't have the money. And him and his wife, Grace, just said, well, why don't you just make the album and we'll worry about it later? Um, and that was our first experience doing an album in a studio, and it was a studio as good as that. I mean, couldn't have asked for more, really. No. It's great the relationships lasted this long as well, you know, that it was all those years ago, and then he's still... Yeah, I mean, I love playing with Edwin. I mean, it's, you know, I love to see him and hang out with him anyway in the band and stuff, and anything to even give a little bit back of what he's done for us. You know, it's nice, and it's just good fun playing those songs, because the guitar parts are really good anyway, and the songs are great. Edwin played a lot of great guitar. Mm. You know, from, from Orange Juice up to, you know, unfortunately, since his stroke, he's not able to play now. But, um, yeah, he played a lot of great guitar, so there's a lot of good guitar parts to get into on his records. Where are you up to with Little Barry these days? Like, the, you know, the, the band? Um, I know that Death Express came out in 2017. Yeah, I mean, you probably know this, but the album came out in July 2017. We were due, we'd done a couple of promo shows, and we were due to start a tour in September to tour the record and 
uh, Virgil, our drummer, died the day before the tour, so that just derailed everything. I mean, it was a massive blow, really. I mean, none of us could see that coming, and, uh, you know, we lost a friend, and I think that, that was the worst thing, really. It's just, I don't think any, you know, either me or Lewis had lost anyone that close to us, really, so it was, it's been pretty hard to get used to that. But, but also, you know, it was, it was frustrating in a lot of ways because we felt like we'd done our best work, and the rug was pulled, you know. I mean, mm. I'm grateful the record stands, and I'm grateful for the time we had. So for a while, we didn't really feel like doing anything. We didn't know if we wanted to do it again or anything. And then I already had the, the workbook with Matt, so in a way that was a welcome distraction. Went off work with Matt, did a couple of other things as well. But then after a bit of time, I was sort of, me and Lewis were sort of thinking, well, maybe we should have a go at something, you know, we should try and do something. And we weren't sure what we wanted to do. We have actually done some recording. Okay. We've made a mini album, sort of like a cross between an extended EP and a mini album, um, which is all finished. So we want to see about putting that out. And then, you know, latter part of last year, we did two gigs. We'd done our first few gigs again, and we felt like giving it a go. We did a small show in Portsmouth at first just to test it out and then we played in London just before Christmas and they've both been really well received so it feels like we can do it again now and I want to do it. I want to get this record out and definitely want to play more shows. I'm just sort of getting into writing again but for a while I, I found that really hard to do. I was just sort of struggling to think straight really but I'm get, getting into it now but it takes me a while to write. I'm not one of those people who can write four songs a day. You know, It takes me a long time. I can write a lot of music but finishing songs takes me a while. Okay. So, so yeah, but f- feel like doing it again now. I feel like we can do it, and we were pretty blown away by the sort of love and the reception we got of the people who came to see us. Actually, so yeah, yeah, want to carry on doing it definitely. Well, that's, that's great to hear. You know, positive yeah. answer that. Yeah, that's and awesome. we kind of felt like that record was never toured properly, Death Express. So there's a lot of songs like we haven't even played live. We'd only played live a couple of times. So there's still life in that record. We still want to play that, but maybe start bringing a few newer things in when they're ready and stuff as well. Because you know, we have to keep moving. The uh, last ball that you played is to my right, but over to the left, I can see a beautiful cherry Gibson 330 that you've brought with you as well. So I wonder if we could have a yeah, chat about I might that. Yeah, have to tune it. Up, okay. For the benefit of the people who can't see it, um, so it was a 1962, is, it? is that right? Yeah, 1962. Okay, yeah. so it's um, 1962 Gibson 330, which is, I guess, is, would you say the Epiphone Casino is more famous than it? It's like the only Epiphone that's more yeah, famous than the Gibson. Yeah, it is, because, version. I mean, they're basically exactly the same guitar apart from the headstock yeah. and the inlays and stuff. So a, a fully hollow, follow, fully hollow body, Yeah. two P90 pickups. Yeah, thin line body, but totally hollow. 2P90, slightly different neck join on these early ones, so the neck's set into the body a bit more than a 335 or 45, whatever. And you've put a um, Bigsby trim on it? I did. It did have a Bigsby on it when I bought it, but it had the wrong one on it. It had right. been on there a long time. It had a Bigsby that was made for a bigger archstock guitar or a, or a Gretsch guitar. Geeky stuff, but if you're going to play a 335 type or 330 type guitar or Les Paul with a Bigsby, you need a B7 model, because it has this extra bar, so... You get a better angle going up to the bridge, basically. Okay, so it sets, sets the strings at a better angle and yeah, yeah, makes it more stable. Sort of tune and, instability, uh, yeah. But um, I was on Demont Street and someone walked in the shop with this in their hand, seeing if anyone wanted to buy it, and my friend said, "Oh, this guy will," and that's how I got it. So it's an original early part as well. That um, so when I got that on it, the whole guitar got so much better because it played so much better and sounded sure. so much better as well. But everything um, else is original. No, uh, I had to replace the tuners because they just wore out. Yeah. And they, they got really bent from being banged against things and stuff. And uh, I replaced the bridge a couple of times uh, because the old bridges, they, um, the saddles can fall out if you break a string. 
right. and spent a lot of time with torches on stage floors trying to fight. You know, it's a nightmare. It's not great so, in the middle of the gig, is so it? So I actually sold the bridge to a friend because I didn't need it anymore. So it's that's too, like a modern yeah, it's, it's a it's thing. a it's a repro. But they, the only slightly modern feature of it is they make them so the sandals can't fall out. Okay. Um, when did you get this? I got this around 2002. Long time then, yeah. Yeah. I moved to London with a 64335, a cherry red one, like the Eric Clapton cream guitar. And I knew it was worth a bit of money, but it was the only guitar I had. So I felt a bit uneasy about just having one guitar, and it was in good condition as well. Especially that one. I mean, they're... they're Stop tailpiece. Yeah, stop tailpiece. Sixty four. The, about the most sought after, sort of up there with the most sort of sought after guitars going, aren't they? The six, yeah, 64. I mean they weren't as valuable at the time when mm. I got mine. I got it not long before moving to London. I bought it out of Carlsbury Retail in Nottingham. It was in the cabinet. Mate, my worked in the shop. Called me and said, "You've got to come and see this guitar." So uh, I traded in the three forty five I had at the time that I bought in London mm-hmm. and got that. Moved to London with it. But I decided to sell that guitar, and the idea was to get two guitars for the money. Uh, my friend Andy, who got us in touch with Edwin, said, oh, I know a guy might want to buy your guitar. Guy came around the house. He called me up, made me an offer, which I turned down. We met somewhere in the middle. I met him in the bank, he gave me the money, got the guitar. And um, I didn't realise he, uh, he was in Radiohead. It was Ed O'Brien's got it. <laughs> nice guy. He was, he was cool. Um, and he still got it. I saw him a couple of years ago. When did said, you find out who he was? Um, because he said, oh, you're sad to sell the guitar. And I said, uh, yeah, a little bit. I said, but it's too nice for me, you know. And he said, oh, he said, I'm in a signed band. I'll look after it. And I said, oh, what's your band called? And he just very modestly said Radiohead, very quietly. And I said, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. Yeah. <laughs> but he was very unassuming guy, very pleasant. You know? I'm in a signed band. Yeah, because yeah, he, he, he said, oh, you know, I'll, look, I'll take care of it. I've seen him play it. I've seen him, mm. I've seen him use it on stage, so I'm, that's, that's your Yeah, it's gone to the right. Take. And once I sold that, I bought two 330s and a 66 telly for the money. Okay, so... Um, yeah. And those three 330s are both gone. I upgraded one of them to get this. And you've used this on, on what, pretty much everything you've done? It's been on all the Little Barry records. Um, although a lot of the first time was done with a different one I had, but a couple of songs were done on this. I'd only just got it while we started doing the record. Um... And then, yeah, all the other records since it's been on at least something. Yeah, and I, I did loads of tours with it and I played on a few records with other people with it. More recently, I did an album with a singer called Angelina Grimshaw from the Isle of Wight and I played it on her record. What is it that you like about it so much that's so, so special to you? I already had a 355, then I had a 345 and then the 335 I sold to Ed. But I saw clips of um, like the Stones in Hyde Park, Keith Richards playing a 330. And also, around the time seeing Paul Weller with his casino, thinking, wow, they sound really great, yeah. you know. So I tried a few of these out in London, I thought, wow, they're really good. So I just started messing around with them in shops, and when I got them, I just realised that, yeah, people say, oh, they don't have as much sustain. Everyone's saying they'll feedback too much, you can't use them live and all this stuff, and it turned out to be rubbish, you know, you've just got to learn how to control it. I like the responsiveness of it, the way it rings out, the fact they're slightly smaller, um, the weight, they, they just seem to be alive, and even acoustically, they have a thing, you know. I just like, I just like the whole vibe of it, and the sound is different, but it can sort of do a lot of the same things. And the fact the sustain is a bit lower, you, shorter, you can use that to your advantage. I find you can get good R and B chanks out of it. kind of space in the sounds you know
Bigsby's really good. It's super light. These old ones are different to the new ones. So it's sort of super light to the touch. Yeah. So you can do a lot with that, you know. It's amazing that, um, I mean, it's a sort of similar-ish age to um, the last ball you played earlier. It's got two P90 pickups, the same, you know, same brand, largely the same woods used. It sounds completely different, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think a 330 is a little bit more... If you crank them up, they're a bit more gnarly and grunty and a bit more raucous. The Les Paul's definitely more hi-fi. Right. Especially that front pickup. Almost more like a steel guitar, especially with those flat-wound strings and all yeah. that. That does a different thing. But if you clean it right up, you know, I loved all those meters kind of sounds, you know. Just a... Or Memphis chords, as Edwin calls them, you know. Memphis chords. Yeah, like, um, you know, he loved all that, like... So there's R&B sounds, you know. All those kind of R&B chops. Is this you um, spending hours listening to records and just playing along and picking up? I used to play along to records a lot. Um, I don't. Yeah, I still do it a bit now because one thing it's good for is if you know if you can't rehearse with your band or whatever. I think it's good at helping you get a feel for the music. So I just used to spend ages jamming along to James Brown live records or anything, Grant Green records or just anything to give you a feel. So much emphasis is on the speed of your your fretting hand on the fingerboard, and people are missing so much. You know, we still live in a time where there's obviously a massive ready audience for the really twiddly guitar stuff. You know, the fast stuff. People just seem to be obsessed with it. Feel is everything, really, for me. If it doesn't feel good, then it's just... I just start switching off. But, yeah, I spend a long time playing along to records. You know, just to try and get the feel of simple stuff like... um, You know, say, even the simple James Brown chants where James might be talking to the live audience and the band's just doing... That's all James wants his guitar player to do. If he strays off that, he's sacked, you know. It's just getting that feel. Trying to get that sort of feel. It's, mm. it's all about the feel in any style, I think. You know, whether it be a slow country song or or whatever, you know, that's that's what it's about for me. Is and it's with got soul. You know. With Little Barry, you've kind of explored a lot, you know, you haven't made like a straight up kind of funk record like that, but you can hear all of these things that you've obviously absorbed over the years, you can hear in, on, on different records and you've, you've sort of, you can hear your influences on each of them. There's so many great songs written with your obvious guitar chords, you know, like... You know, like... Whatever, Neil Young's beautiful, amazing, amazing song. But I got interested in guitar player, like... That's what I liked, I guess, Jimi Hendrix's first example because of his R&B roots is a guitar player who was playing... A lot of his rhythm work is sort of high-octane, psychedelic R&B, really. You think about, I don't know, a song like Fire or something mm. like that. If the production was different and a bit more dated, it could have been a soul record. Yeah. Do you know, with the sort of, you know... You know it's a Temptations Simple record, R&B, it? yeah. yeah. Um, or, and his guitar style interests me because it was like he was playing drums with the guitar. So instead of people just strumming... 
go. So it's instantly you've got more of a conversation and an accent, you know, accent in the, the downbeat and the backbeat, I suppose. Like. It's instantly more of a groove than... I mean, sometimes all you need to do is just thrash the hell out of it, you know, all the way through for the right music, but that more rhythmical, choppy style of guitar interested me. And then other guitar players, you realise Steve Cropper, Canel Dupree, Jimmy Nolan... Um, I mean, there's so many great guitar players in like Bobby Womack, mm. Mickey Baker. It's a bit earlier, but, you know, just things that were rhythmically interesting. I mean, you've, you've mentioned a lot of guitarists. Is there, is there kind of one that really, you know, is, is, is it like your... Well, John ultimate? Squire was the catalyst, definitely. And I, I just loved his style. And then, you know, through my sister and my dad, they taught me about, you know, there was obviously an influence of maybe groups like the Birds there. And maybe... Love, maybe groups like that, but also Jimi Hendrix with some of Squire's things, yeah. you know. Because, like, one song I really loved, I'm gonna be playing this totally wrong, probably. Sorry, John, but with like What the World is Waiting for, do you know that track? Yeah, Rose Track, where you know, there's all of those kind of things. When I l- listen to things like Beggar's Banquet or Axis Boulder's Love, you realized. You know, he was sort of blending some of those things. It sort of had a bit of that in it. Yeah. But I guess him, but Jimi Hendrix, it's a totally obvious one, but I think Jimi had it all because he seemed to channel something. I know it might sound like smoked too much dope or something, and I haven't, but, it, but it's like he seemed to be able to channel something through the instrument that I think, uh, I, can't, I can't put it into words, but he seemed to be in touch with something purely creative. You mentioned before that you've got loads of guitars, or you've had loads of guitars of theirs. How many do you think you've got now? I think I've got 12. Sometimes I think I've got too many. And then other days you don't think you've got enough? <laughs> you don't need 12 guitars. They're not all good. Right. You know? okay. But I do use a fair amount of them, you know, some more than others. But uh, I feel a bit bad if guitars sit in cases and don't get used. You mm. know, I'm, not a, I'm not a collector. We've got acoustics. Thanks to me mate John, he sent me an acoustic guitar, Chris, I didn't have one. Right. I, I used to have a lovely Martin D35 from 1965, first year. But I sold it because I needed another electric guitar at the time for the session jobs I was getting. And I had a 1931 National Duolian at one point, which was lovely. But that had to go when I needed the money, unfortunately. What, uh, you mentioned um, a white custom guitar that you've got. Yeah, Yeah, I designed that a while ago. I wanted to put a solid body guitar together that I could throw around a little bit more and use at gigs. So it looks a bit like a Jag? Is that the well, yeah, I got, I got the idea of the body shape from a, the custom guitar that John Squire had in the Stone Roses in mm-hmm. the One Love video, whereas I think he had a guy, he worked with a guy and built like this guitar that had some Jag parts, but a different body shape and right. different pickups. And I like the idea of it, although I think the body on John's guitar was very big. It was more like a jazz bass type body. And I tried getting one made like that, but it was really heavy. I put different parts in it, though. And... Uh, so then I had another go at redesigning it. And so it was just a guitar for the road, really. But I've used that loads. And, you know, I've modified the circuitry in it and things like that. Has it got a kill switch on it? Yeah, that's why I did all the i5CA stuff and all that. Yeah. Which, you know, people have done before. I sort of wanted to do a, a kind of... A slightly dumb but cool version of... It, I loved what the Beastie Boys were doing with, like, that track Jimmy James, where... I don't know if it was Mixed Master Mike or whoever did it, where you sort of 
you know, transforming with loads of Jimi Hendrix stuff. Mm. And that was, that was just a killer track and the rhythmical effect of that. Talk about the idea of doing it with a button on the floor, but you couldn't get the control or the speed, so put, put it in the guitar. And I know people like Tom Morello have done stuff like that yeah. as well. Have you got a favourite guitar part that you've written? I don't know. I mean, there's a few riffs I've, you know, I was pleased with and stuff like I5CA. Mm. It's three notes, as, as dumb as it is. Uh, stuff like that excites me, you know. I was pleased with the guitar sounds on Death Express because we recorded that record ourselves because we didn't have the money to go to a studio. So I was pleased with the sounds. In terms of best parts I've played on records, I tend to do the opposite and pick holes in them. Eliminate is the, is the one that really sort of stands out for me on that record. Oh, oh I'm glad you like that one. Yeah, yeah we played that live, yeah. I had that riff for a while and then turned it into a song later. That must happen quite a lot if you're sitting and kind of, not noodling, but you know what I mean, like just playing the guitar at home, working through shapes and stuff, that you must write an enormous amount of stuff or, or catch stuff that Yeah, some stuff have, just sits but, around. But then it's really difficult to sort of transform into a song. Yeah, finishing stuff is yeah. the, It's so easy to start something new rather than finish something you've, you're halfway through. But yeah, riffs like the, the basic riff in the verse to that track product had sitting around for years, you know, just to... It wasn't later till we started doing the Death Express I thought I'd put that riff in front, you know. <laughs> mistake but, um, you know then start to put bits together but yeah eliminate I had the riff for a while and then turn it into a song but luckily that song came together quite quickly could you give us a blast uh, yeah um and the drums on actually oh come on they're really good come off it you're right to talk about the um, Battle Call Saul theme tune yeah I don't know if if everybody listening will know but you played that you you know if if you've seen Battle Call Saul the Breaking Bad spin off the the guitar intro to each episode is is, um, is you I know you've told the story about how that came about so it was just the producer of the show that was a fan of Little Barry and got in touch and asked you if you'd do something. Yeah, he liked the song Why Don't You Do It off the second record that we did. But they couldn't use that um, for sort of, I guess, sort of contractual reasons. So they were looking for something in that vein, but also they wanted a piece of music they could cut dead on 20 seconds because you have that interest in when you go into the first scene yeah. of that episode, you know. What was it like, like a Hollywood producer getting in touch and telling you that they liked an album track from your second record? Yeah, I was totally surprised. I mean, we'd done a couple of gigs out in the West Coast, but just small and sometimes not, you know, some more successful than others. But yeah, just to know you, just to think your music had gone that far anyway. Yeah. Was, yeah, it was really nice, you know, and he knew our records as well. You, you didn't know, know him or anything? You'd never no, no, he approached, he approached us. Right. And he was music director for the programme, yeah, Thomas. And he, yeah, he liked the track, Why Don't You Do It? So he wanted something in that vein, basically. And with a similar BPM and stuff. So that, that was the basic blueprint. And then I had to come up with a ton of ideas very quickly. 
to send to them to, to try out, you know. There was a couple in there that I thought were pretty cool that could work, but they picked something totally different. But now, obviously, the track they picked seems totally right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, it, it works, works a treat. You've, in the you've end, seen the show, right? Yeah, although I haven't seen the more, the more recent episodes. But, like, uh, at the time, though, you know, we sent them 29 different variations. First sent them 17, then sent them another 12. Wow. We, we didn't think we'd get it because we knew other people were pitching for it as well. You don't really know what your chances are, especially if you haven't landed a theme really before. And you used the 345 for that? I used the 345 and the JPF amp that Frank built, yeah, for that. But I used the 345 in case this was a bit noisy. So I didn't want them to come back and go, yeah, there's a bit of noise from the guitar channel. And that would be the reason you didn't get yeah, it? Yeah, so... I, on the side of caution, I used the 345. Uh, do you want to play it? If you don't mind. No, no, not at all. I'm sure not people have asked you before. It's a little bit out of tune, but it isn't. And that was it, and then they cut it. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. There was a couple of things that were rejects. One track was rejected. One one idea was rejected, but it turned it into one of the tracks on Death Express. Molotov Cup. Yeah. Oh, that's an amazing. That's yeah. an amazing riff on, on that. Yeah. The, but the original thing, the sort of. Um, That was in there as one of the things, but slower mm. with the fuzz guitar. But we, we just sped it up a bit. Have you ever got bored of playing the guitar? No, <laughs> no, I've got bored of my own. Sometimes I've got, frust- I've got frustrated with my own playing a lot, but I haven't got bored of playing the guitar. You know, I'm hopelessly in love with it. I do think we're working on a session or rehearsing on, on day, but at night I'll still play for fun. I don't know if there's much hope for me really, but <laughs> uh, I love playing the guitar. You know, I'm quite happy if I'm not, you know trying to write something or whatever I'm quite happy trying to learn styles of guitar I haven't learned before you know like trying to get better with the, the thumb pick or, or just trying to find something different I'm quite happy just to sit up at night and play that's never gone away really it's a, it's a happy place playing the guitar for me and there we have Barry Cadogan on star guitar I think he's one of Britain's very best guitarists and certainly one of the most underrated so go and have a listen to the band's albums and go to littlebarry.com to keep up to date with any announcements of live shows or new music that might be coming. If you want to see the guitars Barry was playing, head on over to Star Guitar on Instagram, where I'll be posting pictures of them. That's at Star Guitar Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email at starguitarpodcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at starguitarpod. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave a rating or a review if you like what you hear. Thanks again to Gibson for letting us use their showroom and I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, bye-bye.